Good morning. Please listen to God's word from Jeremiah 2. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 13, 20 through 25, and 32 and 33. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no one dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. And when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The, the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that did not profit. Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care, see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you with a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley, know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going on shod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. Can a virgin forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me, days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. This is the word of the Lord.
morning. I'm Pastor Joey, and I, I feel like I should start this morning with a bit of an apology uh, for having uh, accidentally neglected my American and pastoral duty of filling this sermon with references to the Super Bowl. I forgot it was today. And so, yeah, <laughs> who said what? Sorry. Um, if it's okay with you, I will just go ahead and begin this introduction with something that's a little more my speed. Is that all right? All right. Well, George MacDonald was a Scottish author, uh, poet, and priest, pastor who lived in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. You may be familiar with some of his writings. He was one of the pioneer voices in the fantasy literature in English. Uh, His writings and his friendship influenced a large number of authors, including among them Mark Twain, Lewis Carroll, J.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Madeline L'Engle, and others. Not to mention, he also had a pretty amazing beard. I mean, look at that. Well, I was recently rereading one of his collections of of his short fairy tales, uh, and I was struck by the depiction of a young girl named Agnes in his story, The Wise Woman. So in this story, the main difficulty that needs to be overcome is that Agnes is fairly sufficient in uh, her character development, unintentionally sufficient, by the actions of her parents and their friends, McDonald writes about her, as she grew up, every about, everybody about her did his best to convince her that she was somebody, with a capital S. And the girl herself was so easily persuaded of it that she quite forgot that anybody had ever told her so, and took it for a fundamental, innate, primary, firstborn, self-evident, necessary, and incontrovertible idea and principle that she was somebody. The worst of it was that she never thought of there being more than one somebody. And that was herself. Uh, But the titular character, the wise woman, is a woman of incredible wisdom who it seems her only job in life is the the moral formation of young girls in this story. Uh, But she's a woman McDonald describes as being able to not only see but read the faces of the people she interacts with. And so for Agnes, she devises a treatment that confronts the young girl's deepest love. In this case, her deepest love for her own self. So the wise woman places Agnes in isolation, in a type of sensory deprivation chamber, so that she loses all track of time. But after three days in this nothingness, she's joined by another little girl, a little girl who looks a lot like herself. Agnes quickly realizes that this little girl is herself, her very self, her core who she is when all the externals have been stripped away. This is how McDonald describes Agnes's reflection on seeing this character. All at once, the creature, the little girl, began to smile, but with such an odious and self-satisfied expression that Agnes felt ashamed of seeing her. And then the girl began to pat her own cheeks and stroke her own body and examine her finger ends and nodding her head with satisfaction. Agnes felt that there could not be such another hateful, ape-like creature But at the same time, she was perfectly aware that she was only doing outside of her what she herself had been doing, as long as she could remember, inside of her. She turned sick at herself and would gladly have been put out of existence. But for three days, the odious companionship went on. By the third day, Agnes was not merely sick, but ashamed. Ashamed of the life she had hitherto led, was despicable in her own eyes and astonished that she had never seen the truth concerning herself before. In the story, Agnes has not yet seen 
herself. And the wise woman knows in order to save her from herself, she has to introduce her to herself. That meeting who she really is, is the first step in her deliverance. Seeing her insides on the outside is what's necessary. Now, there's a great tradition in fairy tale literature and, uh, of these, these sort of characters whose uh, moral, uh, you know, their morality, their soul is evident on the outside. You can think of stories like the picture of Dorian Gray uh, or the dragon Eustace in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, whose greed turns him into this dragon. Or the character Gollum from The Lord of the Rings, whose lust for the one ring of power has so enslaved his soul that his outer self has withered away into almost nothingness. Well, there's also a great tradition in prophetic and in apocalyptic literature of using uh, provocative and sometimes vulgar metaphors in order to make the same point, to show to a people what their insides look like if they were on the outside to strip off the layers and expose the core. In Jeremiah 2, what we heard read this morning, is, is one such passage. It's designed to shock us, to shock its original readers into confronting a, an uncomfortable truth, to confront the, the answer to this question of what happens when our deepest love is not on God, but on something else. Now, to explain why we're, we're addressing this question, why we're asking this question and answering it from Jeremiah 2, I want to do a quick survey back of where we've been in the sermon series before. I know for some of you, this is a little like waking up in the middle of a road trip and you don't know where you are or where you've been. So I'm, I want to take a minute just to uh, kind of say where, we, where we've come so far. Uh, this, we're in a discipleship series we're calling Flourish as we look at our vision for discipleship at Faith Church. We started out the series the first Sunday of the year by asking the question, what's discipleship? Just what is it? Before we jump into what kind of disciples God wants to make us, just what is discipleship? And we spent the Sunday looking at 2 Corinthians 3.18, uh, where we read that we are transformed into the image of God, into the image of Christ, as we, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of God, and so are transformed. So we said discipleship, at its core, is gazing at the glory of God's goodness to us in Christ, letting that goodness then transform us. So with that as our foundation and our introduction, we moved into three sets of five sermons each, covering these three big areas. How do we understand the world that God has placed us in? Which also means looking at ourselves. So five sermons on understanding the world. Five sermons on how God then forms us to be ambassadors in that world. Then we'll take a break for uh, Lent and Easter and the Global Impact Conference here in the spring. We'll come back together for five final sermons on then, given the world we're in and how God forms us, how do we posture ourselves to that world? What attitude should we have towards the world around us? These 15 sermons together kind of uh, form the, the basis of our discipleship vision. Uh, not vision in the sense of the specific programs we're laying out, but that this way of thinking undergirds and informs all of the things we do, all the programs that we do uh, embark upon here at Faith. 
So the second week of the series, the first in this five, you know, the set of five of understanding the world that we're in right now, we ask the question, what's the best way to understand our relationship to the world? How do we think about ourselves in relationship to the world? And Jeff led us through a consideration of 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2, where we looked at his metaphor of being resident aliens, of being full-time residents of one nation while full-time citizens of another, of the kingdom that is to come. So how do we live here while being formed by the values and practices of the kingdom that is to come? We're resident aliens. And then we kind of turned to look a little more at the world around us and asked, what kind of world is this? What kind of world are we living in? And from Acts 17, we learned from St. Paul's example of observing the objects of worship in the city of Athens before he preached uh, to the elite scholars there. We learned we've got to look at the world around us if we want to understand and reach the world around us. So we took some time to just look. What does it mean to be in a secular world? By secular, we concluded basically a world in which no belief is taken for granted. Everything can be argued about and everything is argued about. So we, we paused for a moment and just said, this is the world we're in. Let's, let's stop trying to go back to the world the way it was and let's reach the world we're in with the claims of reconciliation in Christ. So then last week, We shifted from looking at the world around us to looking inside of ourselves and asked the question, what's the most foundational aspect of human character? Because if we're going to help people grow in Christ and attract people to Christ, we need to know what kind of people we are. Are we thinkers? Are we believers? Or are we lovers? And we concluded that we grow most in discipleship when we are captured and captivated by the goodness of God's grace to us in Christ, when he captures our love. We looked at that great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because Jesus taught that love is the most fundamental definition of our relationship with God. If we love right, then obedience, belief, intellect follows. Well, this week, we're asking then and answering the question, what happens if I don't love God most? If I'm supposed to love the Lord, the God, Lord our God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, what happens when I don't? What happens when I don't? Which is why we're in Jeremiah 2. We needed to look at a passage that shocked us in the same way that McDonald's wise woman shocked Agnes by showing her insides on the outsides. So we've gone to Jeremiah 2 because in this passage, by the way, you can turn there if you'd like and follow along. It's, it's on page 746 of the black Bible underneath the seat in front of you. We've gone here because in this passage, Jeremiah is using a very provocative metaphor to show the people of Israel their insides on the outside. This is what your heart is doing. This is what your heart looks like. It's a hard dose of reality, but it's designed to get us to pay attention. Look at verse 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me into the wilderness, into a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, set apart, he says, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them. God's using the metaphor, the one simple but very powerful metaphor of a marriage in this verse and in all the verses that follow in chapter 2. What we have here is is the picture of God, uh, the covenant husband of Israel, 
describing his relationship to Israel as the relationship of a husband to his wife. Very emotional terms. Verse 2 stacks up the words for love. Devotion, uh, there in verse 2, when he says, I remember the devotion of your, of your youth. Devotion is that word we translate as like loving kindness, a faithful covenant love. It's the, the chesed word that means uh, a love that doesn't fail, that doesn't run out. And God's saying this about Israel. You were the ones exhibiting this kind of love to me. It was a faithful covenant love. It was the love of a bride, of a wife for her husband. This is the kind of love we had back when the future was uncertain and you followed me into the wilderness. Even though you didn't know where we were going and I hadn't given you the promised land, you followed me. That was the kind of love that you had for me. God says you were, you were holy. You were set apart. You were like my first fruits, the, the best that I have that I offer to God because it's the best thing I have. He's saying anyone who touched it incurred guilt. Like nobody touches my wife, God's saying. You were mine. I protected you. I took care of you. I led you. You were mine. And you can hear in the background the rhetorical question that hasn't come yet. It says, what happened? You can picture an abandoned husband whose marriage is in ruins holding the photo album of his wedding pictures and thinking, what happened? What happened to this marriage? What happened to this relationship? Well, we find out the rest of the chapter is a litany of rhetorical questions that begin in verse 5, but backing up to verse 4, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? In other words, what did I do, he's saying? What, what did I do? The word for wrong is iniquity. What sin did I commit against you that caused you to run away from me? Why did you go chasing off after worthlessness? When I'm right here, what did I do? God's asking. And when he says, you know, chased after worthlessness, it's a, it's a metaphor that Jeremiah really likes to use. It's a word that means breath. Why did you chase after a, a vapor in the wind? It's a word that when used metaphorically, it, it, there's this breath-like, weightless, ins, unsubstantial or insubstantial futility to it. Why did you go chasing something that disappeared as quickly as a warm breath on a cold day and it's gone? See, God's people, Israel, have left behind the covenant relationship they had with, with him, with the God of the universe who created them, delivered them, provided for them, saved them, protected them, and they left all that behind to go pursue something that can disappear in a moment. Now, because maybe because we're Americans or because we like redemption stories, um, we don't like the idea that a story like this just sort of ends. You know, we want it to get better. But in verse 5, God here in describing them is saying, you went after worthlessness and became worthless. This isn't the kind of sin that's just a whim that you can follow after and then be like, oh, it didn't matter. I don't know what I was thinking and then come back. He's saying, you have so aggressively pursued what is worth nothing that you have given everything of value in pursuit of it. You have chased 
emptiness for so long, now you're empty. You've gone after worthlessness and you have become worthless. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Four Loves. He says, when we give our human loves the unconditional allegiance which we owe only to God, then they become gods. Then they become demons. Then they will destroy us and also destroy themselves. More contemporary poet put it like this, everything I love is killing me. Cigarettes, Jack Daniels, and caffeine, and that's the way you're turning out to be because everything I love I'm going to have to give up. Everything I love is killing me. I can't do it in the southern twang that would help you recognize it, but I'll do my best. Everything I love is killing me. And the next six verses go on to outline exactly how Israel chased after these loves not founded in God that are slowly killing them. But the summary of it is found in verses 12 and 13. Scroll ahead to there. God is saying this. He's calling the heavens as witnesses to what Israel has done. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Emotionally devastated. Why? Verse 13, my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's saying that what has happened here is, is completely shocking. It's utterly appalling. That the people who found their goodness, their life in God, have forsaken it for something that cannot possibly satisfy. There's a deep agricultural analogy here in verse 13. Because the fountain, the spring of living water, is the most valuable resource that you can possibly find in an agricultural society living in an arid climate. The southern half of Israel gets about as much rain in a year as Indianapolis gets in a month. Imagine trying to grow crops there or trying to take care of livestock there. If you've got access to fresh running water, you don't give that up. That is your security. That is your income, not just for you, but for generations to come. If you don't have access to that water, then you have to dig a hole in a rock, basically, and wait for all the winter runoff and the spring rains to pool there. And all summer long, you're watching as it slowly evaporates and gets more and more disgusting and full of slime and the detritus of your flocks, and it just becomes this cesspool, mosquito breeding ground of horribleness. I mean, which one would you like to have a picnic next to? Right? And, and, and God's saying to them, you're giving up the source of life to try to find life in a slime puddle that you carved for yourself. And of course, we read this and think, how foolish can you get? I mean, how, how ridiculous can you be to give up the fountain of living water for this mud puddle of sludge? And yet, of course, the image is designed to shock us into looking at our own hearts. What would we choose? Now, the people of Israel know, I think, they know that they're not finding the life they're seeking in other gods. If you scroll down some more to verse 25, 
God is continuing to speak. He's saying to the people, keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it's hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. The New English translation maybe does a better job of translating this in a way that really gives it kind of the the punch that we need to feel. The net says, do not chase after other gods until your shoes wear out and your throats become dry. But you say, it's, it's useless for you to try and stop me because I love these foreign gods and I want to pursue them. Stop wearing yourself out. Don't you see you are driving yourself into the ground chasing these other loves? And Israel's response is, it's no use trying to stop me. That's what I love. That's what I've got to chase. See, God's people, those who have seen his deliverance, heard the stories, are willingly walking away from the only source of life, the the only protection and satisfaction and true goodness that they will find. It's foolish. But what are you going to do if you love those foreign gods? What are you going to do? Well, God mourns, and it comes through in verses 32 and 33. He says, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Do you really forget what you were wearing on your wedding day? Do you remember the decorations? Do you remember the adornments that came with your wedding? No one forgets that. Can this really happen, that someone can forget what they were wearing on their wedding? Well, apparently, my people have forgotten me days without number. God says, I can't even remember the last time you thought of me. That's how long you've, you've, you've been off. Verse 33 is a bit of a backhanded compliment. It says, how well you direct your course to seek your loves. So that even to wicked women, you have taught your ways. Again, the net gives it a little bit more of a punch. It says, my, how good you've become at chasing after your lovers. Why, you could even teach a prostitute a thing or two. That's God's people. God finds himself in this position where his bride, his chosen people, have forsaken the covenant marriage to pursue their disordered love for other gods other husbands, thinking that in, in them, they'll finally find life. What we have in Jeremiah 2 is not, it's not the story of a God who is angry at his people for breaking his law. It's the story of a God who is devastated that his bride has broken his heart. Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah moves in on the heart and says, you've not just broken God's law, you've broken his heart. That's sin in its most heinous form. It's what happens when our loves become disordered, when what should be our ultimate love placed in God is instead placed in something else. Something of of relative value is worshipped absolutely, while the things of absolute value, God is worshipped relatively to how he can provide other goods. Jeremiah shows us in an image that is too piercing to ignore That when our love for God is replaced with a love for something else, we don't just sin in some vanilla way. We commit spiritual adultery. We exchange the faithfulness of God or we pay back the faithfulness of God with our own unfaithfulness. 
We betray him in the way a spouse betrays another by chasing after other lovers. And whatever we betray him with, it may be money or the success that comes with it, the the power, or just the comfort of getting to choose what you do for yourself. Maybe your reputation or the accolades you get in the eyes of others. For some of us, it may be the, the love we never received from a parent that we're still trying to earn, or the love we thought we would get by having kids that we find out doesn't really come. Whatever we betray God with, that thing is the thing we will serve and work to preserve from anything that threatens it. And in the struggle to serve and preserve that thing, we will sin. Not just because we do things that break God's law, but, in, but because in the very act of chasing after those other gods, those other loves, we're breaking God's heart. That's why we're asking and answering this question, what happens when we love something other than God most? What happens when we love something other than God most? When our, when our loves become disordered, when, when, when things get out of, out of shape, out of whack, where we elevate these things that aren't as important above God and we take God and we drop them down a couple of, of rungs, when we forsake our first love in God and, and are drawn from him to worship something else, what happens when we love something other than God most? Sum it up in a short little phrase. Disordered love disordered lives. Disordered love leads to disordered lives. The ancient theologians called this idea of loving something other than God, they called it disordered love. Now we call it addiction. And they said that the the existential restlessness and the chasing after these things that will not satisfy, but we continue to chase them anyway, today we call that a dysfunctional lifestyle. Disordered love always and inevitably leads to disordered lives. If love for God is not first, there's no telling what's following next. Now, I I might have told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it's about my daughter and I'm kind of fond of her. And also because I think this kind of illustrates a way of talking about sin uh, that, that a child can understand and internalize. It was a while ago. She was getting ready for bed. We were snuggled up in, in bed, and um, she didn't want me to leave, didn't want to go to sleep, so she asked me a deep theological question. Daddy, what is sin? Right? So I responded in the ways I knew. I was like, um, you know, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism clearly states. <laughs> she looked confused. So I thought, well, maybe I should say sin is anything that makes God unhappy. I thought, well, that, that gets a little closer. But it, it just it didn't, didn't have the punch I was looking for. So since we were snuggled up in bed, she has this uh, a little stuffed cat named, named Duchess. It was white and fuzzy when we got it, and now it's gray and kind of scratchy because um, she's had it for a while. It's, it's named Duchess after the Aristocats, the, the old Disney movie. Yeah, great movie. Anyway, um, every night... She can't go to sleep unless she has Duchess. She needs to cuddle up with Duchess, which is fine. That's great. Um, it lets me say, here's Duchess. I'm leaving now, you know, and, and she can go to bed, and I, I can go watch Netflix. It's, it's, it works well. 
But we're laying in bed there. She's got Duchess, so I take Duchess and hold, hold her up in front of Anna and said, Anna, what, what do you think would happen if you love Duchess more than you love Mommy and Daddy? And she kind of thought about it in a five-year-old's way, and she gave me a couple answers. She said, well, I guess I, I would probably give Duchess more hugs than I give you. I was like, well, that's probably true. She's like, I'd, I'd probably talk to Duchess more than I talk to you. It would be fine if she just asked her questions, you know, the questions she would always just keep asking us. She's like, I'll talk to Duchess more than I'll talk to you. So I might spend more time with Duchess than I would spend, to you, spend with you. She's like, is that bad? I said, well, none of those actions are bad in themselves. It's not wrong to talk to Duchess. It's not wrong to snuggle Duchess. I'd rather she snuggled Duchess at night than me. She kicks while she sleeps. Duchess can take it. I can't. I'd rather she snuggled Duchess. I'd rather she hugged Duchess than me at night. All of that, that is all good unless the love for the stuffed animal is greater than the love for the parents. Now, let's elevate this to an adult level. Is it wrong to put in long hours at your job, 60, 70, 80 hours a week? Well, no, of course not, unless your love for your job eclipses your love for God such that in your job you're trying to find the sense of security and the sense of purpose that will not come from your job, will only come from a relationship with God. Then it's sin. Is it wrong to love another person and spend vast amounts of time and energy on caring about their happiness and working towards their happiness? No. Unless your love for finding your identity in that person is greater than your love for God and finding your identity in God. If you don't know who you are, if, unless you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you don't know who you are unless you're married, then your love for that person and what you get out of that person is greater than your love for God. Is it wrong to volunteer your time at church in the children's ministry or with student small groups or by going on a mission trip? Well, of course not. I'm paid to say no. It's not wrong. But if you're serving in the children's ministry or in senior high or junior high or going on a mission trip or doing anything in the church because you, you care more about people seeing an outward facsimile of righteousness rather than God telling you in Christ you are righteous... And it doesn't matter what you do, you are already righteous. If, if other people's opinions of you matter more than God's, then yeah, it's sin to serve in church. If you're using it to pursue other gods. Now, none of those things I've mentioned are against God's law in the sense you're not going to find... Uh, you're not going to find a, a 12th commandment right behind the, the one about coffee. The, you're not going to find a commandment that says, thou shalt not uh, volunteer thyself overly much in children's ministry. But you will find the description of a people who are chasing after other gods. There are all sorts of things we can do that are good things in themselves and yet become sin when we do them, if in the act of doing them, we are chasing after some God other than God. Because most of our sins aren't wrong in the against the chapter and verse sense you're going to find here. But they are wrong if it's our way of seeking life, of hewing out cisterns for ourselves that end up not holding any water, of, of chasing after worthlessness. 
Now, it may be tempting to think that this whole idea of placing up idols and worshiping other gods is, is an Old Testament problem. It's something that uh, people did when they were less educated and when they uh, you know, thought that carving a little totem of something would, would give it power. Well, at least we could fast forward to the, to the New Testament and there's half a dozen different places at least where this idea uh, of spiritual adultery, of running after other gods and, and um, being unfaithful to God shows up, but probably clearest in Revelation 2, where the church in Ephesus is told by God in this letter, like, hey, I love the way you are sacrificing. I love how hard you're working. I love how you are persevering under persecution. But you know what? I have one complaint. You don't love me anymore. You've run away from your first love, your primary love, your most important love. You've, you've gone away from it to chase after other things. And when, when God says in, Ephesians, or in, in uh, Revelation 2, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first, abandoned is the word divorce. So you divorced your first love and continue to do all these great things, but you don't love me. So... As we conclude this this morning and move into communion, I want to challenge all of us to pause for a moment and consider the state of our own hearts. Uh, Three quick points by way of of application of how do we take a passage like Jeremiah 2 and transport it into our context. First, I want you to recognize the power of disordered love. We have to recognize the power of disordered love, especially for, for those of us who, who, who still feel it's all up here. If I could just get more information, I'd learn to do the right thing. It's, it's in here. We're not talking about a knowledge issue or a willpower issue. We're talking about a love issue. All of us, all of us are a people whose loves are constantly being co-opted by rival gods, by rival offers of, of goodness. And when our hearts are co-opted, there's no telling what happens next. One author put it this way. If God's love for us and our love for God do not control us, then who knows what we might say or do. He continues, in failing to worship God, we open the door to the worst of sins and all hell breaks loose in our lives and in the world through us. A disordered heart is a heart that is literally making its own hell if you stretched it out into eternity. This is a problem of the heart. We have to be captivated and captured by better visions of goodness than the things that are constantly flashing before our eyes, not least on this uh, high holy day of consumerism where you're going to get little 30-second and one-minute-long snippets of the good life in between watching people pound each other's brains out. Obligatory Super Bowl reference, done. (laughs) We have to be captivated by a better love than you're going to see in the gospel of buying stuff this evening. That's the power of disordered love. Second, the equality of disordered love. We have to recognize the equality of disordered love. What I mean by this is that this is all our problem. Not just those of us in this room who set our alarms and got up and came to church this morning. This is the problem of all of humanity. Our loves are out of order and out of whack. We 
are not such amazingly upright people that God looked down at us and said, I'm going to pick some people who have me in their top five loves and save them. We are just as disordered, just as sinful, just as evil as anyone you read of in history or know personally. We're just a little better at keeping a lid on it. That's the equality of disordered love. We are all equally in in need of God's grace to us. And that leads us directly to the third application point, compassion. When we recognize that we are a people who have been saved completely by grace from, from a hell of our own making, from a death of our own creation, we can't help but be compassionate towards those who are still in that slavery we used to be in. It's tempting and it's easy as a church, and it's, it's natural, frankly, because we can't see the disorder in our own hearts, to look at other people and be like, look, can you not see the disorder in your own heart? And we begin to condemn and judge uh, other people for having their hearts out of whack. Uh, look, the, the means may be different, but the end is the same between us and those who do not, do not know Christ. The end of a disordered heart is still our own destruction. If we're sitting here in the church condemning those outside of the church because their loves are out of whack, we're like cancer patients in the hospital judging the person in the bed next to us for having cancer. It doesn't make sense. We have the same sickness. And so we have compassion on those who have not yet found life. Well, I think we've labored on this question long enough this morning. What happens when we love something other than God, most. When our loves become disordered, our lives become disordered. And we cannot save ourselves. It's a whole other discussion, but even trying to save ourselves is just evidence that our love is still only on ourselves. We need someone who will come in and rescue us, someone who will love us so deeply and so sacrificially that we can't help but love that person in return. We need someone whose love is as vast and as wide as an ocean, whose, the force of whose love overpowers us like a flood. If we're, if we're the bride in this analogy in Jeremiah 2, if we're the bride, we need a husband who's willing to chase us even as we run away. We need a husband who's willing to buy us back out of the slavery we found ourselves in through you know, cost only to himself, who will take us home, who will clean us up, who will make us new again. We need a husband who will redeem us out of this empty death that we find ourselves in. The Apostle Paul put it this way, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? <laughs> 